1: course, the World Economic Forum underway in Davos, Switzerland. We'll be bringing you interviews from the event all week with Tom Keane live from Davos. This morning, the Bloomberg editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, sat down at the event for an interview with the new CEO of Uber, Dara Khosrowshahi. I want to take a listen to what he had to say in that conversation right now.
2: You are close to six months into the job, and I wondered what you saw in terms of the year ahead at Uber as your biggest challenge. What's the thing that you think about most when well, it comes to 2018?
3: We, uh, we definitely have our share of challenges yeah. at Uber. Uh, and for me, where I want to get Uber to the year ahead is is a year of normalcy. You know, 2017 <laughs> was, uh, I think, will go down as one of the most difficult years for any company out there. And I have to, and I have to give credit to the Uber team and the employees there. It is a group of true believers who believe in our mission, who believe in mobility as a service being available to consumers everywhere uh, at a reasonable cost, and what my job in 2018 is to is to get rid of the distractions and get the company back to business, get the company back to normal. See, there's a lot that we've done in the past six months as far as bringing new investors, driving a new culture and norms where. Doing the right thing, period, comes first. Uh, Bringing in a new management team, etc. There's a lot that we've gotten done, but this is a company that knows how to execute. This is a service. Mobility as a service is something that's universal, that's needed in the world. And I want, to, and I just want to get back to doing it's business. It's quite
2: interesting. You said true believe, true believers. Yep. Normally, true believers are the the last possible people where it's you're able to change a culture. Can you explain a bit about that?
3: Well, I think that they are, uh, they understand that um, mobility as a service, uh, bringing the cost of transportation down, uh, making transportation services available to anyone and everyone on a local basis, and partnering with cities to be a solution to uh, traffic, to pollution, et cetera, that is a mission that they all believe in. Uh, and I think that. They, having seen what happened in 2017, to some extent the crisis, the enormous crisis that the company has gone through is a benefit because everybody at the company knows now that we need to change, that we need to break with the past as far as the way the company was run. We need to go from growth in any cost to responsible growth and and growth in partnership with other players out there. That's clear, but now I've got to kind of get the uh, company down to the normalcy of execution of building great technology, and I think we're going to get there. It's still some tough sledding early on, but I absolutely think we're going to get there.
2: When you talk about execution, is profits one of the things you want to get? I think you lost four billion dollars last year. Well, profits. Pe- peanuts by the Pro- standards of profits income. would help. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so.
3: Uh, at some point, we absolutely have to become profitable, and that's part you, of the plan. But you have
2: a, do you have a kind of goal for that? Do you think you should be profitable by 2022 or by 2022? I think we'll be profitable before 2022. Uh, this is a,
3: uh, the business itself. Do you want to come back a bit closer, 2020? Yeah, saying? listen, I'm, it, I'm going to, I don't want to name a specific year, uh, but this is a business that um, the core business, the ride-sharing business, can be profitable within three years, we will continue to make very aggressive investments in building out autonomy because we think that's a terrific opportunity uh, for building out new technologies such as uber elevate where near-term profitability is not a a goal but long-term growth is so we will look to balance near-term profitability but as a company we will always be a company that makes big, bold bets and takes big risks.
2: To what extent, though, do you think that drive to become profitable fights against a little bit of this culture change? If you want to make, you talked about making money, but not at all costs. Do, do those two things well, are I, against
3: I I, I don't think that profitability and culture are their issue. It, it, it's, um, it, the, the company in the past was uh, willing to make trade-offs as it related to how it did business uh, and and I think was 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 guilty of hubris was guilty of of thinking that they knew better than others and and I think that what we know now clearly is that breakneck growth can hide uh, uh, cultural issues uh, that there are no excuses for not doing the right thing. Mm and that you do have to make trade-offs. And, and as a management team, we're specifically talking about those trade-offs that you have to make. Uh, we have to be a little more patient sometimes because working with governments, regulators, etc., sometimes takes longer, but in the end, you build a more lasting business. Uh, and so we maybe what we went through was necessary, uh, but we're here. We can control our actions from this moment onwards, and, and I think everyone at Uber... Uh, from this moment onwards, wants to build a great company, not only in terms of growth, but in terms of the kind of company anyone would want to work at.
2: Can I ask you one thing which you have got a sort of hangover from last year, which is the, all, the re, all the regulatory problems and particularly all the, all the cases against you. I think there are six criminal probes or whatever going on. The which, lawyers
3: are lining up outside exactly. the door. Which, yeah.
2: which, which, one, which one do you sort of think, which one do you fear most, I suppose, as, um, as different things?
3: Listen, I think, I, I think that all of them are serious issues and, and my response is that we're going to be transparent and we're, gonna, we're going to take responsibility for our actions in the past. Um, I do think that the, uh, there are certain circumstances where uh, there was smoke but no fire. Uh, and I think as a company we have to defend ourselves and, and, and work within kind of the appropriate
2: frameworks. And my goal is just to get beyond this stuff. Some of these things like pricing policies, surely they go right to the heart of what Uber is, or am I wrong about that?
3: Yeah, I think they do, but, but I think that there's a way of, of being smart but transparent at the same time. Uh, and that's where we've got to take the company.
2: Take me through governments. When, when you talk to governments privately, do they talk any differently than they do publicly? Governments? Publ- yes, governments. Um, I think that they are honestly
3: a, a, a bit relieved with how we are engaging with them because I think, I think that the engagement is, is now real. I think they feel like uh, we're out there, we're, we're genuine because we've learned our lessons of the past. Uh, and, and I do think that we can take, for example, the data that we have in terms of traffic and in terms of... Uh, movement of our drivers and riders and we can use that data to partner up with cities uh, in order to solve congestion issues because congestion doesn't help anyone. it wastes enormous amounts of time for consumers. Uh, It it hurts the environment. Uh, And I think that we are aligned with cities, for example, to partner with them in a fundamental way to solve these problems. And I do think that when these are conversations that a number of regulators and cities have wanted to have with us for, for many years, and I think we are really engaging with them at a depth uh, that, that I think is, is going to create a real win-win going forward. Do
2: you think you were too confrontational on this before?
3: Yeah, I do. That
1: was the Uber CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, sitting down with Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, at a conversation in the Bloomberg Eurohead Forum at the World Economic Forum underway in Davos, Switzerland. Tom, he used those words breakneck growth, and breakneck growth can hide cultural issues. It can also exacerbate them as well without significant discipline coming down from leadership. Yeah. And what we found in Travis Kalanick is that leadership, that's discipline, was certainly absent. The question is whether Dara Khosrowshahi can really turn around what is a massive tanker yeah. of a company.
0: Well, it, it's a secondary tone here, but it is tangible that social media and, frankly, the modern Silicon Valley tech will be a changed uh, tone a changed culture over the next two to five years. Ken Rogoff today was heated with David Rubinstein about the death of unicorn companies and particularly the extrapolation of their value based off small, tangible transactions.
1: In private um, markets, and, and none yeah. of them, Tom, have really come public in a significant <laughs> way. We're still waiting for Airbnb. We're still waiting for Uber to make that move.
0: Yeah, David Rubinstein was really heated about... Not that they've, you know, proverbially jumped the shark, but that there's just a change in tone that you witnessed there with the interview uh, with Mr. Mm Mickelswate. To get to our guest, I want John Farrow to review sort of his take on Europe, Italy, Politics, John. Mr. Draghi has a meeting tomorrow. Does he? Matt, does he care about the March fourth elections in Italy?
1: I think he does, but I think he's less worried than he otherwise was. I think we came through the French election last year unscathed, and I think we came through that yeah. election unscathed because there was a realization that in many of these countries, leaving the monetary union, even if you are anti-Europe, leaving the monetary union is something the electorate will not go for. And I hear less about that in Italy than maybe we would've heard a couple of years ago. So I'd say President Draghi less worried about the politics, maybe much more worried, and it's a a high-class problem to have, I think, in his words. Much more worried about this uptick in growth and maybe inflation around the corner and how he's gonna move monetary policy without shaking this market.
0: Rave reviews on Mr. Draghi this morning at my panel, and now joining us, Paul Sherrod uh, at S&P Global, their vice chairman, and truly one of our acclaimed experts on Japan. But to move away from Japan, Paul, to Europe, the surprise of our panel, a better than good Europe, and even laggard Italy puts it on, does mm. better.
4: Yeah, Tom, it's great to be with you here in Davos. Um, Europe, I think, is, uh, is two distinct stories, which obviously sort of intersect. But one is the more cyclical, what's happening in terms of the, the economic expansion, and that's a pretty good story. But um, the other story, of course, is the whole set of issues, not just around Brexit, uh, but around the whole architecture. Uh, of the Eurozone and the architecture of the European Union. That's a conversation that's playing out in slower motion, um, but I think that's really going to be a big a potential story for 2018. Mm. Uh, again, I don't know how closely the audience is following this, but um, you know, the President of the European Commission uh, has been coming out with reports. And that there's a whole kind of political dialogue which is going to take place, um, particularly after this third major election. The uh, election in Italy is out of the way in early March.
1: Paul, anyone who's anyone on the international stage needs to be or wants to be around President Emmanuel Macron. It seems to give them some kind of PR, positive PR, just being next to this guy. He wants more European integration. He wants a separate Eurozone finance Budget. He wants a separate Eurozone finance minister. Does Chancellor Angela Merkel have the political capital at home to drive through the vision, or at least help Emmanuel Macron drive through his vision for a more integrated Europe?
4: Well, we'll have to see how the the coalition talks, you know, finally play out. But the encouraging thing there is that uh, you know the coalition between uh, Angela Merkel's party, uh, the CDU, but then on the other side of the. the 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 table, of course, is Martin Schulz and the SDP. Martin Schulz, having descended in from the European Parliament, where he'd been speaker and a very strong advocate of more Europe. Um, so in that sense, the ducks are potentially lining up here. Um, it's not just Macron. It's as I mentioned, the Commission, the European Council. Uh, and if the Germans come on board, and if we don't get some kind of uh, something from left field mm-hmm. uh, politically in the in the Italian election, you know, <coughs> if this if it's not going to happen now, it being moves towards greater integration, particularly, as the Europeans put it, completing the economic and monetary union, Um, hard hard to understand when it would actually happen.
0: Paul shared with us, folks, S&P Global uh, this morning, their vice chairman, and of course an acclaimed economist with decades in Japan. I want to get to Japan in a bit, uh, Paul, but right now something really, really quite important, and that is the IMF study yesterday, and Maurice Obstfeld, the acclaimed uh, academic, made clear they're looking at short-term optimism. Explain for our audience the milieu you live in, which is the short-term, the medium-term, whatever that is, and the long-term. IMF, with short-term opposite, op- uh, optimism, there was a big butt there, wasn't there?
4: Well, I suspect the, the, the IMF are being good economists, which is not to get too absorbed by the short-term cyclical movements, which the markets tend to focus on more. And, you know, wherever you look, whether it's the US, whether it's Japan, whether it's Europe we just discussed, or whether it's China with the the, uh, the challenges that they have, um, you know, there are underlying structural issues uh, in these economies. So the uh, you know the expansions that we've had since the financial crisis, to a large extent, uh, have been, you know, credit to the uh, the central banks in particular the policy authorities uh, but you know a cyclical expansion driven by monetary policy doesn't cure the underlying structural challenges yeah. in economies and you know, I think the you mentioned Japan it's been a long time there that one of the big lessons from Japan of the 1990s is that when you have deep structural problems in that case it was in the banking system um, you know you do have to tackle them head-on don't rely on cyclical well, expansion to somehow bail you out. And as
0: I would with Robert Feldman and Morgan Stanley, and John, I want to dive into the Japan discussion here just because it's such a treat to have yeah. Paul Sherrod with us. The emperor, I guess, abdicates is the proper phrase. That signals a generational change. Is that overplayed or is there really a generational change? Time has moved on in deflationary Japan, hasn't it?
4: Well, you know, I used to use Tom the the analogy of a of a of a duck on a pond. We all talked about the lost decades in Japan, but uh, you know that is misleading in the sense that there's been tremendous change be beneath the surface. The duck on the pond, before you know it, has moved right across the pond because it's you know paddling frenetically uh, under the surface. And you don't really see that, so uh, it is a significant event. Um, you know, I think the fact that. Uh, uh, y- you know, he stepped down and handed over the reins. Uh, you know, is is a change to the normal practice in Japan. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's a sign of Japanese breaking with some of the traditions, the cultural traditions which are deeply held, um, and
1: uh, and doing something a little bit different. Paul, you mentioned demographics front and centre. The elephant in the room in Japan is demographics, and I wonder why we still have this structural issue in Japan, which is an older population. You've heard the stats: more geriatric diapers sold in Japan than baby diapers, that's how dire the situation is as, uh, as far as the demographic situation is concerned, yet the Bank of Japan is sat there involved in trying to stimulate demand through lower interest rates and an expansion of its balance sheet. That doesn't make sense when the issues are structural, the issues are demographics. You can't print people, so what is the BOJ trying to address here?
2: Hmm.
1: Well, I would make a distinction, John, between the, the sort of the supply side
4: of the economy, the structural side, which is really one of the important drivers there is demographics, obviously, uh, that feeds into GDP growth from the qu- the question of macroeconomic or demand management. And that's really the job of the central bank. So I would sort of argue that the two issues um, are a little bit orthogonal. Sorry to be, um, use some jargon there, but not Bowden, really directly related. can we say th- orthogonal
0: in Switzerland? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's given thumbs up. Okay. okay. We um, can go there.
4: And uh, <clears throat> in the sense that what the Bank of Japan has focused on is saying look, we want to get the rate of inflation to 2%, that's our job, Uh keep the 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 economy at full employment. What real potential growth level or growth rate is associated with that? Being at full employment and having low stable inflation is a, is a sort of separate question. Now, what I just said is standard economic analysis, Yeah. but it is be, it has been contested. And in fact, yeah. the prior governor, Governor uh, Shirakawa, um, his view of the world was, as you intimated, perhaps yeah. the demographics drive deflation and there's nothing much monetary policy can do about it. Uh, Governor Kuroda, obviously has taken a different view,
0: right, uh, John? I just, uh, jargon, I want you to get one more question here, John, with uh, Dr. Sheard. But we do do a jargon alert here. Orthogonal, John, is a perpendicular philosophy, sort of like looking at the New England Patriots and comparing them to <laughs> AC Milan.
1: <laughs> that that would be certainly it's certainly very orthogonal. Oh, no. Paul, uh, my final question to you in the in the short period of time that we do have is whether what the Bank of Japan is doing is the right thing to do, whether we should have this obsession with inflation targets when GDP per capita in Japan is so strong, when by all metrics we're pretty much at full employment. Why do this? Big question. A short answer is
4: that um, I I do think they're doing the right thing. I do think there's too much obsession about uh, decimal points in inflation targeting. And I do think that central banks uh, are a little bit too isolated. I think we should be looking at demand management being the joint responsibility of the monetary and the fiscal authorities. But having said all of that, um, I'm a great supporter of what Governor Kuroda has done.
1: I have to be for consistency because I was a great critic of the previous uh, regimes (laughs) of the Bank of Japan. Paul Shid, it's been great to catch up with you. Very insightful on on Europe and Japan, S&P chief global economist and executive vice president. Joining Tom Keeney, Davos, Switzerland, and myself, Jonathan Farrow, here in New York. We now have an important conversation, an individual who frequently advises banks, investment banks, accounting firms, hedge funds and other major financial players on fiscal policy. The federal budget and developments of the uh, likely deliberations in, in Washington, D.C. He literally wrote the book on the budget. The guide to the federal budget is Stan Colander, the Corvus MSL Group joins us now. Stan, it's great to have you with us. Um, My question as a Brit, a guest in your great country, is why do we still do this in the United States of America?
5: Still do budgets, you mean, or still do shutdowns? Still do government
1: shutdowns, still do debt ceiling debates. I mean, this isn't going away anytime soon, is it, Stan?
5: No, in fact, not only is it not going away, but I wrote an article in Forbes over the weekend that said that uh, uh, these are now the new normal, that is shutdowns. You're likely to see them more because, uh, and more often... Simply because all all the sides, no, on on no one sees any downside to it. They see it a way as showing their uh, respective constituencies, base voters, well, that it's good for them.
0: Stan, John McCain, when he was less sick, wrote an important essay begging for us to get back to the budget process of our UTE, the budget process that you helped invent. Why? Just a question I've had three times in Davos. Why can't we get back to a normal process?
5: Uh, Tom, it's real simple. They don't want to. It's not that it's not doable. Um it it certainly is, but the most most members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, but mostly Republicans, see the budget process as something to be used for their own devices rather than uh, uh rather as a as a basic function of the government. So shutdowns, debt ceiling, debacles, uh, you know fiscal cliffs are things you've got to expect simply because they they act as campaign rallies. Uh, think of how many members are going to go, members of the House and Senate are going to go home this weekend to their constituents and say, "Look what I was willing to do for you." And so these things act as as, as reelection events rather yeah. than as good government.
0: Well, in, in into a conversation I had with Jane Harman, the former liberal and Democrat congresswoman from California, but someone who's been a hawk on defense and very knowledgeable about how your Capitol Hill runs, what do the Democrats need to do to respond? Do they go to the middle, maybe where Mr. Schumer is, or do they need to stay out on the progressive left of our budget debate?
5: Well, going to the middle doesn't seem like it's good. Look, let's think about the ultimate goal here. For well, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, that's re-election and perhaps increasing your numbers at the next election. Good legislating is not the plan and is not their goal. Under those circumstances, going towards the middle is not going to satisfy, uh, on the Democratic side certainly, uh, the the rapidness of the voters who are trying to get back at Trump. I mean, they're they're looking at this as a re-election fight, part of a re-election fight, rather than as, as, as something keeping the government until lights open. So um, I think what the, what the Democratic leadership would tell you, what uh, groups like Indivisible and, and Resistance and things like that would tell you is, uh, we're going to resist the Republicans at all times because it increases the motivation of our voters to get out and vote, and that's how we win in November 2018.
1: So Stan, this kind of feeds into shutdown politics. debt ceiling politics is very very different. There are real consequences in that situation. How does this bleed over, if at all, to the debt ceiling debate that we're set to confront really in the next couple of months?
5: Well, not, not only the next couple of months, but maybe the next couple of weeks, Jonathan. It looks like uh, the debt ceiling is going to uh, – well, it's already expired, but it looks like it's going to start to get critical with the, the so-called extreme measures that the, the Treasury can use running out about mid-March. So it's going to have to be raised – the debt ceiling is going to have to be raised by then. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that there will be some who threaten not to raise the debt ceiling. Um, if they don't get what they want. Uh, remember the Freedom Caucus, the House Freedom Caucus, the ultra-conservatives have done that uh, a number of times over the last couple of years, saying they'll they 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 they'll lie down on the tracks and let the train run over them before they'll raise the debt ceiling. Now, that's a tough position for them to take this year, uh, given that they just voted to increase government uh, debt by $1.5 trillion with the... Uh, with with the tax bill, but um I, I think that's that's I've been saying this for weeks. That's what the markets really need to be worried about, which is if they're if Congress and the president are having trouble with nuts and bolts bills like appropriations and and the budget, then what happens when you get to the debt ceiling and there's just there's a dislike of the bill to begin with. So um i I, I think we need to expect some sort of cliffhanger type situation with the debt ceiling that'll be even worse than it was with this the uh, this first shutdown of what would there could be many.
0: The economy's better. Are tax revenues going up?
5: Uh, compared to what, Tom? Is, is you know is, is the logical question. Um, look, we've just voted to lower revenues. Uh, exactly. Economic growth is economic growth is not that much higher than we had anticipated before the tax cut. Um, so, under those circumstances, where are the higher revenues coming from? And in fact, the deal yesterday cut taxes further by another thirty-one billion dollars for several. Muslim I did India not know things. that. Um, yeah, thir- that, that
0: another thirty-one billion was
2: taken billion. off.
5: Yeah, so um, our revenues are not going up, and it's almost certainly going to increase the deficit—not the, the debt, but the deficit—to over a trillion dollars a year starting now. Well, starting in, um, and through every year through the Trump administration, however long. It goes unreal,
0: Stan uh, I did not know that. That's why we love having you on—a tidbit uh, from the new slow thirty-one billion large uh, disappears in tax revenue. Stan Collender, thank you so much. He is at The Budget Guy out on Twitter and, of course, the core of his communication. I'm Tom Keenan Davos, and now you'll hear me say, folks, this is the most important interview of the day and investment management or foreign exchange this is the most important interview of the year for tom Keene. the foundation of our analysis of you our audience is founded in the edelman trust barometer it is an extraordinary document i'll put it out on social thanks to mike allen of axios who wrote it up big uh, yesterday and joining us the founder of this seminal document For Tom Keene and Bloomberg Surveillance, is Richard Edelman, of course, the leader of Edelman and Edelman Digital. This year, your Edelman Trust Barometer is not a pretty picture. It's an America
6: in chaos. Well, Tom, we see that uh, America has fallen to be the lowest of the 28 countries that we survey in trust. Uh, That uh, trust in government has imploded, 30 points drop, and uh, 14 points in the general population. And what we observe is that the rest of the institutions have followed uh, government downward, and uh, I, it's it's actually a, a sort of lack of common facts and, and a lack of rational discourse and completely unusual in that it wasn't based on a big <clears throat> economic downturn or a calamity like Fukushima.
0: The heart of the Edelman Trust Barometer is it ain't pretty. You people have had the courage to go in over the years and parse out society, and you do it as a general statement of the informed public and the uninformed public. Richard, is it just as simple as President Trump has a trust of the uninformed public and everybody else is informed? That's too simplistic an analysis, isn't
6: it? Well, really, it's uh, polarized, and um, it's Best uh, evidenced by um, a look at trust in the media. The Clinton voter actually has rising trust in media to 61 points, and the Trump voter is at 30 points or so for, for trust in media. And so, at the base of all of this is a different view of the world, right. different facts, yeah, different yeah. thought bubbles. And um, actually, it's, it's not sustainable, Tom, because we now see that there's a desire for facts for knowledge for for authoritative sources Um, it's a drop in a person like yourself and a rise in academics technical experts and yes even ceos this year
0: experts are doing better
6: yes because we want to have facts we want to know that what we're hearing is correct and unbiased and right And has truth.
0: Okay, your job, I mean, your day job is to go around and tell CEOs what to do, particularly those in crisis. That's the acclaim of of the Edelman of your father and the Edelman of Richard uh, Edelman. That's great. What do you advise the media people to get respect back? Or do you say, don't worry about it, this will go
6: away? Look, 50% of the people we surveyed said that they have turned off altogether on mainstream media. Some part of it is um, they say media is too disturbing. Some part of it is I get everything I need from social and search. That group is differently informed from the other half who are very mainstream oriented. But the problem with it is, Tom, we're not having common facts. And so I think it's really up to business in particular to speak to its employees. 70% of people trust their employer. and. That's a real window into the employee group who then can share but the information. Then how do you synthesize,
0: and if you don't want to talk specifically about the property, Jeff Bezos' is success with the Washington Post. I'm assuming that's an evil media to Trump supporters. I mean, I'm just making a generalization there. But what does the Edelman Trust Barometer say about a
6: media success like Axios or a media success like the Washington Post? There's a 12-point rise in trust in journalists this year. People want credentialized folks writing their content for that half that is reading mainstream media. For the media. informed half that's but reading. Not, but you can't claim that it's the informed half, actually. It, it is some part of the general <laughs> okay. population as well. Those people, unfortunately, are in thought bubbles. Uh, and they're, 65% of people say they can no longer tell the difference between fake news and real news. And more than half say, therefore, I can't even judge a government official, and I can't judge a, a CEO as to how well they're doing. If so you, it has consequences. If
0: you're just joining us, Richard Edelman here, an annual visit with his magnificent Edelman Trust Barometer. I will put it out uh, uh, on social media uh, and on Twitter. Uh, it's made quite a splash in Davos as it does every year, particularly with the Financial Times breakfast. Did, anybody, did throw anybody throw a breakfast muffin at you at the FT breakfast? <laughs>
6: No, no muffins. No uh,
0: anger. But but there used to be not funny, and that CEOs were getting beaten up, and media types were getting beaten up. The CEOs are doing better within
6: the trust barometer, right? Well, I think CEOs have benefited this year from uh, standing up on issues like LGBT or the Me Too uh, movement, and and uh, you know whether it's Mark Benioff or Tim Cook or uh, Howard Schultz, any of them, they they are showing leadership, but. The next phase has yeah. to be that they have to get their companies to speak into that information void and allow us to uh, actually understand these issues better.
0: In, in in the time that we have left, let's switch gear to an application. Do you represent Uber? Am I am I, going to get into trouble on that? Our John right. Micklethwaite today talked to the new leadership at Uber. Come on, they need to parachute in Edelman mm-hmm. for you to do your pixie dust on Uber. What would you recommend to Uber to write what seems to be a set, not not a big like Tylenol train wreck, but you know a set of issues. How does Edelman handle
6: that? Well, for Uber, which is a great brand, well known, um, the uh, most important thing is to make their drivers feel as if they're part of the company. Give them equity in the company. Give them some share in the future as opposed to making Brilliant. them freelancers yeah. and, and otherwise distinct.
0: I mean, but that's a brilliant idea. I mean, not, you know, I, I just haven't heard that, to take the uh, gig economy, if you will, and give it equity. I mean, it's what it comes down to.
6: But it's the same deal that uh, Oscar Muniz mm-hmm. has done at United Airlines. Pay people a good wage, give All them right. a sense of, of the future, uh, and then they'll serve their customers better. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of better wages, better benefits, uh, but expect better work is, is the next big idea.
0: What does Edelman Digital, and they're two separate companies, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, what does Edelman Digital say about video? It's really front and center right now. Facebook is challenged by it. My observation is, as a generalization, adults don't want to see video. They don't have time for it. They can't get through it. But what have you learned in your research on video?
6: People want, who are young, uh, to see it, not read it. And they want to witness it in a way. Uh, and they also want to produce it and they want to feel as if yep. um, they're part of the content creation crowd. So in Edelman Digital, we're creating communities where it's respectful and shared content and shared experience.
0: Within that is a phrase you said, who are young. When they get older, do they switch to act like you and me? Or do you think it's a game change? Where we I mean, the answer is we don't know.
6: We don't know. But here's the thing. The big goal for me for media in the next year has to be to move from being advocates to being uh, people who inform. I think that the degree to which media has become opinionated actually is taking away the middle in the United States. And, and we have to get to a place where there is uh, a common ground where people can actually debate.
0: But the audience wants the angle. I mean, certainly within cable TV news, they've delivered a product with Mr. Ailes' revolution. They've delivered a product that the audience wants, which is they want to hear what their side says.
6: But you see, I think that's just the people on the edges and and the ones who want to be loud. Um, There's this, again, 50 percent of people who've turned off Mm -hmm. of mainstream media partly because of the tone. And the polarization doesn't suit anybody except for the extreme. I can't
0: imagine your survey can be more interesting next year. This is just extraordinary this year. The the visible polarization witnessed in the Edelman Trust Barometer of a number of countries, and particularly the United States of America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.